So here we are in Matthew chapter 2, and Matthew wants to drive home the point that Jesus is the climax to the Old Testament story. He's used a genealogy so far in chapter 1 to get this point across, and now in chapter 2, he's going to rely on prophetic fulfillment. We saw the first of these in Matthew chapter 1 verse 22, where we read that all of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. And we'll see it four more times in chapter 2. But prophecy doesn't work like most people expect it to. Prophecy in modern talk usually means prediction of the future, and we come across them in fantasy novels which talk about some vague promise of a chosen one who's going to accomplish some great feat by following the path laid out in such a prophecy. And some biblical prophecies do concern the future, but others are more about recognizing the patterns of how God interacts with his people. For example, in chapter 1, we're told that the virgin birth was a fulfillment of Isaiah 7:14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. But when you go back to Isaiah and read the surrounding context, it doesn't have anything to say about a future Messiah who would perform miracles, teach the people, and die on a cross. Instead, it was a sign to the king of Israel at that time that before this promised child grew much older than a year old, all the enemies of Israel would be overthrown. And so instead of looking for a prediction of the future, we should be looking for the patterns of how God works with his people. Just as the child Emmanuel in the book of Isaiah meant that God was present and was about to deliver Israel from the enemy, that's what Jesus means. His birth meant that God would forgive his people, come back to them, and overthrow the enemy of sin. So as we look through the rest of the chapter, we want to ask, how does the life of Jesus fit in with the pattern of God's work? The birth of Jesus is first noticed by what are commonly known as the three wise men. They were wise, but we actually don't know how many of them there were. Other English translations call them magi, royal advisors to the court of Persia. And they notice a star while they're over in the east and come to the conclusion that the king of the Jews had been born. They were eager to worship him, but when they come to Jerusalem, the news they bring doesn't sound so good to the officials. Matthew 2, 3, when Herod the king heard of this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Now Herod had a couple of reasons to be troubled by the news of a new king. Josephus, the ancient Jewish historian, records that a Jewish prophet told Herod that he would one day be king. And not long after, he was made king by Rome. If the account is true, then we can imagine that Herod put a lot of stock in prophecy in wise men. And second, Herod's position as king was tenuous at best. He was only made king by Rome. And when Rome broke out into a civil war, he picked the losing side. Caesar Augustus could have had him deposed, but kept him in a position of power. And that power was enforced through brutal violence. Herod himself was only a quarter Jewish, and he had slaughtered all the previous Jewish rulers. It wouldn't take too much patriotic fervor to start a revolution against him. And so the religious leaders in Jerusalem, they point the wise men to Bethlehem, as foretold in Micah 5.2, where the Messiah would be born. But Herod has no intention of worshiping. He wants to eliminate Jesus. What we see is the first instance of a much larger pattern. None of the priests or scribes were interested in showing up to the birth of the Messiah. Only the Gentiles were. Jesus would be constantly rejected by his own people, only to be embraced by the Gentiles. Now, after the wise men come to worship the king, Joseph is told in a dream that Herod is after the boy. So Jesus is taken to Egypt in fulfillment of Hosea 11.1. 1. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. As mentioned earlier, this isn't a future prophecy, but actually a look into Israel's past. 
Just as Israel spent time in Egypt, so must their king. Herod, discovering that he had been tricked by the wise men, simply orders that all the baby boys, aged two and under, in Bethlehem are to be murdered. It's shocking to us, but given the long list of violence committed by Herod, that would just be a footnote in his story. We're told that this also is a fulfillment of prophecy, Jeremiah 31.15. Thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Once again, we find Matthew using a surprising passage to support his claim that Jesus is the Christ. In Jeremiah, Rachel, one of the mothers of Israel, back in the book of Genesis, she's weeping in Ramah about 11 miles north of Bethlehem. And she's weeping over the captive Israelites being sent to Babylon, not murdered babies in Bethlehem. What we should notice, again, is the pattern. The prophet Jeremiah himself fled from the violent king Nebuchadnezzar and was taken to Egypt. And now we see Jesus following in those same footsteps. The final fulfillment of prophecy happens in verse 23. Joseph is told that Herod has died and that it's safe to return. So they make their home in Nazareth, and Matthew tells us that this too is a fulfillment of what the prophet said, that he would be a Nazarene. The only problem is that, try as you might, you can't find that prophecy. Nazareth is never even mentioned in the Old Testament. The most fitting explanation is likely found in Isaiah 11, verse 1, which tells of a coming king. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. In Hebrew, the word for branch is netzer, possibly a play on the words with netzereth. So five prophecies, only one truly predictive in the sense that most people would expect today. To fulfill prophecy is not just to do what it said would be done, but to follow the pattern of God and Israel's history together. Jesus was a sign of salvation just like that child was in Isaiah chapter 7. He was foretold to be in Bethlehem, just like in Micah 5.2. He sojourned in Egypt, just like Israel did. He fled the violence of an oppressor and lived in exile in Egypt, just as Jeremiah did. He is the branch of Jesse, the Nazarene. Matthew is saying that Jesus' life is everything that Israel's life was. It fits the same pattern. In the Bible, prophecy is God working in that same general style over time, but in bigger and better ways. And we see this in our own lives and experience with God. Our baptism is reminiscent of the Red Sea crossing. The Lord's Supper is similar to the manna and water provided by God in the wilderness. The Great Commission sounds awfully similar to God's original mandate for man to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth with his image. Now we're to go and make disciples. And then the temple has been reconceptualized not as a building, but as God's people, his church. So we see that God doesn't repeat himself, but he does rhyme. So as we read these fulfillments, we can rest assured that God's hand is behind every movement of Jesus. The birth of Jesus is surrounded by scandal and danger that most wouldn't find fitting for kings. But from these prophecies, we learn that nothing has surprised God, and all is according to plan. 